Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, if U.S. news media never used the terms wake-up call or racial reckoning again with regard to the latest instance of institutional white supremacy brought to light, that would be fine. Far better would be for them to do the work of not just acknowledging that U.S. news media have supported and inflicted racist harms throughout this country's history, but shedding critical light on the hows and whys of those harms, and then taking seriously the idea of repairing them and replacing them with a media ecosystem that better serves us all. The Media 2070 Media Reparations Project encourages conversation and action around that vision. We'll hear about the work from Alicia Bell, co-creator and founding director of Media 2070, and current director of the Racial Equity in Journalism Fund, housed within Borealis Philanthropy. We'll also hear from Colette Watson, director of Media 2070 and vice president of cultural strategy at the group Free Press. That's coming up, but first, a quick look back at some recent press. A Wall Street Journal editorial claimed that student debt relief, quote, insults the millions who paid their loans back, close quote. A Newsweek headline echoed that idea with, borrowers with paid-off debt feel punished for doing right thing. Well, those familiar with this particular corporate media tune might want to know that it doesn't reflect reality. Data for Progress actually asked past student borrowers and found that a majority of them support forgiveness of at least some student debt for every borrower. Astra Taylor, organizer with the group Debt Collective, spoke for many when she told Democracy Now!, quote, social progress means that other people do not have to suffer through something that previous generations did, close quote. You would hope a free press would amplify that message rather than deny and suppress it. And speaking of things elite media really, really want you to feel, facts be damned, a New York Times article declared, quote, even as the costs of China's zero COVID strategy are mounting, Beijing faces a stark reality. It has backed itself into a corner. Three years of its uncompromising, heavy-handed approach of imposing lockdowns, quarantines, and mass testing to isolate infections have left it little room, at least in the short term, to change course. Close quote. Nowhere in the article is there any acknowledgement that China saved more than four million lives by not having a COVID death toll comparable to the U.S.'s. Nor is there any hint that life expectancy in the U.S. has now dropped below that of China, 76.1 versus 77.1 years, respectively, in large part due to the U.S.'s it's-over-cause-we-say-so approach to the coronavirus. And finally, NPR recently ran a series on Afghanistan a year after the U.S. military withdrawal, devoting 18 segments and 114 minutes to the question, who is included in the new Afghanistan? But as Bryce Green reported for FAIR.org, virtually invisible in NPR's series was the hunger crisis 
currently facing Afghanistan, which got 30 seconds of airtime, or the U.S.'s seizure of Afghanistan's central banking reserves worth $9 billion, greatly exacerbating the Afghan food shortage. That theft got all of 10 seconds of discussion during the length of the series. If NPR cared about the Afghan people, its coverage would be aimed at informing its own listeners about how their country's policies are dramatically hurting Afghans. U.S. citizens may have different opinions about these disastrous policies, but the facts need to be adequately discussed in the media. Instead, NPR's coverage divorced the misery of Afghans from anything having to do with its audience, directing attention to the flaws in the Taliban rather than a violent U.S. policy that deliberately starves the Afghan people. That's news, but it's not really news we can use. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. The 1968 Kerner Commission report didn't just say that U.S. journalists were mistelling the reality of recent civil unrest in Newark and Detroit and elsewhere. They declared that that coverage was only part of a broader media failure to, quote, report adequately on the causes and consequences of civil disorders and the underlying problems of race relations, close quote. And the report linked that failure to the industry's abysmal record in seeking out, hiring, training, and promoting black people. For those that remember Kerner, that's where it seemed to end. But actually, the report didn't say more black journalists were the answer. It said that affirmative action was a necessary part of the process of decentering U.S. reporting's white male view. It wasn't just about making newsrooms look different. It was about changing the definition of news as being only or primarily about white men and about doing that for the good of everybody. The Kerner Report's themes resound in the experience of Elizabeth Montgomery, a former Arizona Republic reporter and the subject of the new short film, Black in the Newsroom. The film and the actions around it are part of a project called Media 2070 that aims at acknowledging, reconciling, and repairing harms the U.S. media system has caused and continues to cause to the black community. Alicia Bell is a co-creator and founding director of the Media 2070 Media Reparations Project and also current director of the Racial Equity and Journalism Fund, housed within Borealis Philanthropy. Colette Watson is director of Media 2070 and vice president of cultural strategy at the group Free Press. Welcome, Alicia Bell and Colette Watson, to Counterspin. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us, Janine. Well... To either of you, I would say, obviously, Elizabeth Montgomery is special, you know, um, we, we all are, but she's, she's really special. But what is there about her experience that made you think, well, this is representative enough to, to hold it up, you know, to, to use it to highlight some things that we need to talk about? What made you want to tell her story? Well, I guess I'll start us off and say that Elizabeth really was 
not only representative of many people's experiences, but also very courageous in her willingness to be transparent. And so often one of the greatest barriers to our ability to shift these negative dynamics, these dynamics of anti-Blackness um, in newsrooms is the reticence that surrounds or the taboo that surrounds talking about issues of compensation or representation or bias or just experiences of anti-Blackness within newsrooms for good reason, because we understand that there's often the threat of retribution or losing one's livelihood and other kinds of repercussions. But in Elizabeth's case, she was, you know, in that tradition of brave truth tellers in our community. She was willing to be very upfront about what she was experiencing. And I felt that for us, it was important to honor that courage and to help amplify her story. Well, what were some of the things, some of the elements of her experience that had resonance for you or that you thought would have resonance for other Black reporters who've, you know, tried to do the work within these, quote unquote, mainstream institutions? Absolutely. You know, um, Alicia works with a lot of media makers every day, and I'm sure we'll have thoughts. For me, it was the fact that she was doing such great work. And there's a quote in the film where she says, I'm making y'all look real good out in the street. Mm -hmm. And I love the way she said it, because so much of any newspaper or media organization's ability to exist is its relationship with its community and its reputation. And Elizabeth was covering these incredible stories of black, the black bookstore, the only one in Arizona. We talk about that. She was covering, you know, this wonderful black woman resident of the greater Phoenix area whose ancestors were among the first people transported to this land as enslaved, um, enslaved African folks. Just, and just, that's just a tiny fraction of the coverage she was providing and really uh, enabling her newsroom to represent the community in a way it had not prior to her taking on that reporter role. And despite that stellar work, despite that real community impact that was bringing to life what this newsroom says it wanted to be about, despite all of that, she was really being mistreated. And I think that that's an experience that a lot of Black folks in media can identify with. Mm -hmm. One thing I'll add to that, is that, you know, I met Elizabeth when she was a reporter working at a newsroom in Wilmington, North Carolina. And so when I met her, um, when she moved and went to another newsroom in Arizona, I was able to introduce her to Colette and they were able to meet. She had similar experiences. And the fact that this story of her being a Black journalist who was doing excellent community-rooted reporting, answering questions that folks had, sharing stories so that people could see themselves in the, the coverage, and lifting up issues that were previously not being lifted up. That was something that she was doing in North Carolina, and it's something that she was doing in Arizona. And the fact that in both of those places and spaces that she was undervalued and then underpaid, I think is indicative of the fact that this is not a, a one newsroom fix issue. It means that it's not a regional issue. It's not just specific to her. And it's, it's something that carries across the United States across a variety of, of Black experiences that folks have going into newsrooms. 
And the other thing I'll add is that we also have data and information to, to kind of contextualize the story within, right? We, we have some salary data that shows that, that Black folks and especially Black women are underpaid. We have the, the work that Meredith Clark was doing recently with the, the journalism and diversity surveying work where folks were just not responding and sharing, sharing their demographic information or sharing salary information or anything like that. And so we also knew that, that this was only a microcosm of a larger issue because we were able to situate it within data that was existing and data that folks didn't want to release, likely because it tells a really terrible story about how Black folks are treated and, and valued within journalism. Well, back in, um, I guess it was 1993, Jill Nelson wrote in the book Volunteer Slavery. She talked about how when she was at the Washington Post, she wanted to tell stories about the black community that she suspected and worried would be done less well if somebody else did them. And then at the same time, she was irritated when anything would happen involving black people and everyone would kind of look at her like, so this is you, right? You're you're going to do this one, right? You know, like she, she wanted to do right by her community, but she also wanted to do any kind of story and be a black reporter doing it, you know, um, and it was kind of about that that dual or even multiple kind of layering of work that black journalists have to do within these uh, organizations. And that's why hiring and retention are not the same thing, right? Why folks will take jobs but not stay. Absolutely. All of that plays into a sort of dehumanization that folks experience in newsrooms. Uh, Another reason that we honed in on Elizabeth's story was because around the time that she was publicly testifying about her experience, a study was released by the News Guild that showed that 14 different Gannett newsrooms were underpaying women and journalists of color by as much as $27,000 annually in comparison to their white male colleagues. And so you're underpaid and you're experiencing this sort of hyper-visible, hyper-invisibility in the newsroom, uh, similar to what you were describing with Jill Nelson. The experience of that and also having not having the leadership that's needed to, you know, ensure that folks' full humanity is being recognized, that there's care in the newsroom during those traumatic experiences, traumatic storytelling experiences, you know, all of that becomes very dehumanizing and and therefore folks leave the field. And Carla Murphy has done incredible work Mm -hmm. around that, which Mm -hmm. we touch on in the film with her Leavers survey. And but what that results in is really a lack of black leadership, of folks of color in leadership positions, and people really leaving at the mid-career point just when they would have been able to step into those leadership positions and really maybe change the direction of a newsroom. And so when we lose, you know, when we lose folks at that mid-career point, we lose so much more. We lose the ability for these newsrooms to to evolve. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Well, we have seen some efforts toward what is forever being called reckoning, but outlets like the Philadelphia Inquirer, which has this a more perfect union project headed by Aaron Haynes that is examining systemic racism in in particular institutions that are rooted in Philly. But we see outlets around the country at least saying 
that they believe that they have a responsibility to examine their own institutional racism. I wonder, I'm not exactly sure what I make of it. I wonder what your thoughts are about the seriousness or even what would be the proof in the pudding of this, um, you know, self-reckoning that we see some media outlets at least saying that they're doing right now. You know, I think that it's, it does garner a lot of a lot of feelings and a lot of emotions. Mm-hmm. I, when I think about the work of, of media reparations, I think about something that our colleague Diamond Hardiman lifts up quite frequently. That and and Colette lifts this up as well. That re- reparations is already happening. It's already it's already been seeded. It's already blooming. And so the way that I understand that and the way that we understand media reparations and reparations more broadly is that it, it requires kind of at least four four kinds of actions. It, it does require reckoning and that kind of knowledge, study, publication. It, it requires acknowledgement to say this is what we did and, and it was harmful and it, it did this or it had this impact. But the things that we don't see happening right now in this kind of journalism reckoning space and and more broadly in any sort of space and place where we see folks commissioning studies around systemic racism or racist histories or anything. We don't see the next two pieces, which is accountability and restitution. So accountability being how do I, how do I make up for this harm now? How do I heal it now? How do I stop it now? And then the the restitution part of how do I make sure that it it doesn't have soil to grow in in the future? Very often we see folks stop after the reckoning and after the the acknowledgement. Mm -hmm. And they'll say like, we did the thing. We we published the report. We published the information. We apologize even. But if there's none of that in conjunction with a stopping the harm and disrupting the soil that the seeds grew in in the first place to ensure that it doesn't happen into the future, then it's not enough. So I know that reparations have been seeded, and I know that reparations are already blooming and are already coming because I see the reckoning and the acknowledgement work happening. But I also know that we have so much more work to do and so much more to fight for because we have not had anywhere near an adequate amount of accountability and restitution into the future. And I see that in journalism, but I see that more broadly across a lot of different kinds of reparation work. Absolutely. Uh, Reparations are so often presented as backward-looking, you know, instead of as a generative idea, as an idea about the future. And uh, Alicia, I know when we spoke back in 2020, in the midst of public protest after the police murder of George Floyd, you know, we were saying how people are talking about building relationships between police and community. And you were saying, well, what about building relationships between media and community? You know, that needs to also be a real relationship with real accountability. And so, you know, you've just done it to talk about what reparations might look like. But just the idea, if you want to say any more, either of you, about how it's a forward-looking generative thing. It's about things changing now and in the future. And it's a very positive, joyful 
potential, you know, thing about dreaming and about, you know, forging a shared future. Absolutely it is. That's why we named our project Media 2070. We understood that, you know, 50 years ago with the Kerner Report and and 50 years before that with the Chicago Race Relations Commission and the report it issued after the Chicago race riot that we were in a 50, every 50 year cycle of unrest followed by analysis that in each case sort of honed in on media as a key aspect of the systemic oppression that black folks experience in this country. And so we want to break that cycle and not, and in 50 years, we want to be in a time when we have truly transformed our media and created a a future in which there is abundant resources for black folks to be able to control our own narratives from ideation through creation into production and even out into distribution. And that that is a future that is not only abundant with black narrative power and control, um, but also with uh, black media makers having the resources and the care and support that's needed in order to tell stories in ways that are truthful and nuanced and really contribute to our shared truths as a society. And so when we look toward 2070, it's not that we're waiting until then. We're starting now, as Alicia said, the the seeds have been planted and we understand reparations are inevitable. And we want to know what is the media system that gets us to that future. And that's the journey that we're on together. I really appreciate you lifting up that it's it's a joyful thing, that there's a lot of jubilance and healing that's there in reparations, because we do understand that to be true. We we understand it to be a practice of of creating a, a culture and a society that is is more caring for everybody, that is more nimble and responsive and and accountable when harm happens, when conflict happens, when not this is not an expectation of perfection. It is not an expectation that there will never be harm again, but it is an expectation that we do better and that we maintain a certain level of buoyancy. And, you know, as someone who's who's raising children, I have never met, and I'm sure these people exist, <laughs> but I have never met a single parent across races, across ethnicities, who does not want to raise caring children. Yeah. And yet, Somehow, we allow, we are co-creators of, we are complicit in maintaining a society that does not care for all people. And so reparations is really looking at what are the, the infrastructures, the institutions, the policies, the practices that we need to have that care be permeable and felt by everyone. And what I know is that when all of our folks are cared for, and all of our folks are, are able to navigate things, to navigate conflict nimbly, have access to, to joy, to leisure, to, to work that, that is serving, work that is fulfilling, that that's a better society for everyone. Well, finally, let me just say to you both, Black in the Newsroom, I know, is not just a film, but an opportunity, an opening for conversation. I think that's how you see it. And I wonder if you could tell us about how Phoenix went with the debut and and how you hope to use this film going forward as you travel with it around the country. 
You know, thank you for asking. Phoenix was beautiful. We had such a lovely room and conversation. After the film screening, uh, we had a panel of organizers and artists and journalists who really talked in a real way with each other about the challenges of being Black in the newsroom and also the challenges of connecting and telling Black stories despite so many of the institutional barriers that we face in, in just trying to exist, much less you know, be in community with each other. And I think that as we as we go around the country with this project, we've been privileged to be selected for a few film festivals and invited to a few university campuses and things like that. As we move around with this project, it is it's definitely an invitation, Janine, I'm so glad you put it that way, into extended conversation between community members and the journalists who are also members of their communities. And for folks to understand that, the solution we're offering is solidarity because we often get asked, what's the solution? What's next? How do we solve it all? It's solidarity between community members and organizers who are you know, agitating for that future in which everyone has the care they need, that beautiful future Alicia just described, and solidarity with journalists and other media makers and artists. And for us to be co-creating this shared future and the narratives that will get us there. Because um, we understand that that narratives and myths of Black inferiority have been baked in to our media system and its practices since the very, very beginning, as we outlined in our Media 2070 essay. But the reparations framework invites us, as Alicia so beautifully laid out, to acknowledge and reckon with that history and then to go about truly, you know, building that, that shared future. And we believe that the Black in the Newsroom conversation and the, the lens of understanding the unique experiences of Black journalists and the care that they deserve as they try to tell Black stories brings us into a larger conversation of how we can understand our solidarity as we forge that future that's ripe with reparations and, and the just media we deserve. So it's an entry point into the world of Media 2070 into a beautiful shared future. And really it's been an honor to help tell Elizabeth's story in a way that invites us all to, to, into being in relationship and, and building with one another. We've been speaking with Alicia Bell and Colette Watson. For more information on Media 2070 and Black in the Newsroom, you can check out the website mediareparations.org. Alicia Bell and Colette Watson, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by the Media Watch Group FAIR, based in New York. If you'd like more information about FAIR, you can check out our website, fair.org. That's the place to learn about our newsletter extra or to sign up for our Action Alert Network. The show's engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.